Are you convinced that the only next available option to you is to go out and fundraise? Do you find yourself routinely posting on forums and mailing lists trying to find a CTO? Does the idea of bootstrapping your tech business seem impossible? Stay tuned because today we hear from Caroline Hughes, who successfully bootstrapped her business before raising a quarter million pounds in crowdfunding. In a world that is run by Silicon Valley, how do we, women entrepreneurs, create businesses that change, inspire and move this world for the better? Without being held back by the hurdles and obstacles the tech industry often throws our way. How do we create the impact we want and realize our full potential by leveraging technology to work for us, not against us? This show cuts through the status quo and is your guide to exploring technology confidently. Welcome to Cutting Through Tech. I'm your host, Maxine Kramer, and I'm on a mission to secure the digital future for us by doubling the number of female-founded tech businesses. I'm a software engineer, designer, coach, and consultant who's worked on apps that have had over a million downloads in a day and featured in Apple retail stores all across the world. I work with female founders, entrepreneurs just like you, to maximize their impact by creating world-class software-based businesses. I'm a woman, I'm in tech, and I'm the CEO of a business that is looking to make a mark. Stay tuned because on this show, technology becomes as simple as everyday English, removing the barriers so you can think, strategize, and execute like a female tech CEO. This is episode 24, How to Bootstrap Your Way to Success with Caroline Hughes. This is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with a fellow female founder. Caroline Hughes, CEO of Lifestyles, is a wonderful force to be reckoned with. Today, we talk about how she successfully crowdfunded a quarter million pounds of investment But more importantly, the steps that she took to get to a point where this was the right choice for her and her business. You'll hear about how she initially invested in technology, but then backtracked and buckled down on creating a solid MVP instead. Also, how she found the right working group with her partner, who happens to be the COO of Lifeties, and how she now leads her team remote first. If you've joined me from outside the UK, I did quickly want to explain the concept of a challenger bank, which Caroline refers to in this episode. Here in the UK, we have banks like Monzo and Revolut, who are mobile first and very different to traditional banks. They have no branches, everything is done digitally, and they have a strong focus on user experience. So these are often referred to as challenger banks. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you to enjoy this conversation. Hi, and welcome to the show, Caroline. How are you today? I'm really good, and it's so nice to be here, Maxim. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited because um, we met in late 2017, and I think then we did the workshop. You came to one of my workshops in 2018. Yes. And you were still doing life ties on the side, I think, but a lot of exciting stuff has happened since. Yes, we've done a lot. Life ties has been effectively a side project for me until now. So it's only now that we're raising our first external funding that allows me to go properly full time. When I say it's been kind of a side thing, it just means that I work 24 (laughs) seven. So it's like a full time job and then I have to earn money along the side of it to keep it going. (laughs) I, I, I honestly, I know exactly what you mean. Although that being said, I think it's easier for me to say it than you. You've done like honestly incredible stuff in the last few years. Um, but for the listener, let's start. What What is Lifetize? So Lifetize is it's financial technology. So if you've heard of fintech, this category, it's basically the new generation of financial services. And if you'd 
told me that I was going to get into financial services a few years ago, I would have said that you are absolutely loony. Um, but we realized that financial services doesn't really serve everyone. So we're building technology that helps people figure out how to afford their lives. So things like buying a house, having kids, all of those kind of life goals that used to be much easier to do. And now a lot of us are thinking, how on earth do we do it? We build tech that helps people figure out all of the affordability and then all the step-by-step stuff to actually get there. That is fantastic. And I think exactly finance is easily, it kind of underserves the the everyday person almost apart from your day-to-day banking. And those are very important questions now more than ever. How do we afford houses? How do we afford the lifestyle that we want? Um, so how? tell me a bit more about you and how did you get into this? And like you said, you didn't expect to go into fintech or finances, but here you are. So how did that happen? Um, a really roundabout route. So I'm a lawyer by training. So I was an intellectual property lawyer for a number of years. And when I qualified as a lawyer, I chose to do IP because those lawyers got all of the cool toys. So you'd go into their offices and they'd have like the latest gadgets and stuff like that. And I was thinking, well... I want to have, I want what they've got. So that's pretty cool. So I did IP and that meant that I got to work with a lot of tech companies. And this was back in the early 2000s. So it was kind of when e-commerce was just beginning and even m-commerce, even though smartphones didn't exist. And so I worked with a lot of different tech companies, but then I actually moved out and worked in fashion and advertising for about eight years. And that was mainly because I loved the fashion shows. I have to confess, I quite like the celebrity party side of things. And that was really cool. And then really Lifetize came about because we realized that we, so my co-founder is my partner, Nick, Mm -hmm. and we realized that we and all of our friends were kind of coming up against these issues and there was nothing out there that helped us. So we built for ourselves really. And it went from there. Amazing. And what is that like, actually? Just a quick side question. What's it like to work with your partner? Um, <laughs> it's, it actually has worked out very, very well for us. I wouldn't say go into it lightly, but because it kind of was a problem that we wanted to solve for ourselves, it made sense. And we have very, very complementary skill sets. So I'm very strategic and analytical. Nick comes from a financial services sales background. So he's really, really hot on both industry and then how to sell within that industry. And so it works, but we have had a lot of coaching, couples therapy and stuff to be able to work really well together um, because it's intense. There's nothing, you you know, it's our life. Basically, we don't have work-life balance or separation. (laughs) Life ties is our relationship. Our relationship is life ties. Everything is (laughs) commingled. Well, it's good that you uh, you're supporting that with the appropriate tools. I think sometimes people go into it without realizing what it means and without creating the space almost for solving those problems along the way, if that makes sense. And having that fundamental foundation of like, okay, this is how it's going to work for us. And we're both feeling comfortable with that. No, completely. We realized very early on. So we're both quite alpha personalities. Mm -hmm. So I have the CEO role, Nick has the COO role, but really we do so much together. And it does help, like I say, that our skill sets are very separate. So we don't kind of impinge on one another's domain expertise so much, but we have, it was important to us to get scaffolding in early uh, because we realized, I think if it depends what type of business you're building, you know, we're looking, we're very ambitious. We're looking to build a huge global business Mm -hmm. with Lifetize and you can't do that on your own. Even with the best intentions, you need outside help to make that a possibility. Where, where are you now with that? Do you have a larger team? Is it still you and Nick? No. So we've had a part-time team. Mm-hmm. So everything that we've managed to do has been kind of on a pick-up, put-down basis. So we haven't until now had employees. We've always used contractors. Still, a lot of our tech is outsourced, mainly because we're in London and tech talent in London is so expensive. You're up against huge competition when hiring. And actually, we... We've always run a remote first team. It fits with the values of our company. We want to be able to hire people who perhaps 
don't get the same opportunities because they're not in one of the major hubs that they're living in. Maybe they've got caring responsibilities, whatever, whatever their background is, that means that they might not fit the standard mold of working for a tech company. Mm-hmm. We've always wanted to be open to being able to hire and work with those people. So I remember even kind of like six to nine months ago when we'd be talking to having like early conversations with investors and explaining that we were remote first. And that was kind of held against us a little bit. And now obviously with the pandemic, everything is remote first. And so we're, we're ahead of the curve on that. We haven't had to change anything in terms of what we're doing. Now that is absolutely fantastic. And I think as well, having worked for a company remote for three years, um, fully in my career, like it's, you pick up skills that are taken for granted, I think, or almost even looked down on in terms of how can you be efficient when you're remote? And it does take very particular focus and um, development of certain skills. But when you have them, they are so valuable and even more so in today's, you know, pandemic to be able to kind of keep up what you're looking to do with your business, right? And have your team be comfortable, be effective, and also know that they are able to, to kind of, to the best of their ability, go on as normal when it comes to work. At least not everything is, is pulled upside down. Yeah. So for us, like I said, nothing really changed in terms of our operations um, with lockdown because everybody was already set up to work remotely. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was just a case of making sure everyone was okay. You know, recognizing that, of course, people only get to bring a part of themselves really to work because they've got everything else that's happening behind the scenes. And all of a sudden, everything that's normally behind the scenes was right up, you know, in front of Zoom cameras. You know, all of a sudden you saw, you saw everyone's background. Um, but for us, that's nice. That's the human bit. You know, Life Ties is a very human company. We're doing stuff to help people be more financially secure and having that ability to kind of, for people to be okay with their work, home life, everything else is part of what we are. So for us, it was just like, is everyone okay? What do you need? And now, you know, here's the direction we're going off you go, but we treat people as grownups. You know, you come to work for us and we don't actually really mind when you get your work done as long as the work gets done. Imagine that treating grown-ups like grown-ups. I know it sounds revolutionary, <laughs> and I just think, well, shouldn't that be the norm? I don't know exactly. So at this point, you've you've done a successful raise, um, which we'll get to in a minute. You've got this team that is up and running, remote, fantastic. Um, it's not just you and Nick anymore. You know, trying to work everything out together, which is fantastic. How did you get there? So how did you start with Live Ties, and were able to get it into a place that it is today? Yeah. So there's, there's something about bootstrapping. So when we came up with the concept of life ties, it was a long time ago in startup years. So it was probably around 2014, 2015. And we came up with this concept that was, if we're going to do financial services better, it needs to be done in a way that makes sense for people. And the only way money makes sense for people is if you put it back into the context of their own lives. Here's what I want to do with my life. Please show me how to afford it. And we realized that the biggest challenge wasn't really about the numbers side of things, wasn't financial modeling. It wasn't building incredibly complex AI at this point. It was about how can I make money make sense to people? Uh, now and if they forecast it into the future. And so at that point, we were like, right, we're going to build, we're going to borrow very heavily from the games industry and we're going to build the Sims for your real life. We're going to let you play out different scenarios. We're going to show you how much things cost and we're going to build this whole world. And then we budgeted that and we realized that that was like a hundred million dollar project and we definitely didn't have a hundred million dollars. And so... We actually went out to raise money and we had offers of investment, but we realized at that point that we needed to scale down what we were building and build it in a modular way so that we can kind of test and learn as we went. And we realized that actually we could do that with our own money. And then we could take our time doing it because we knew that consumers weren't ready. The market wasn't ready. There were no challenger banks, really. Like Monzo didn't exist. You know, it seems really strange to us now, but so much of what we take for granted didn't exist. And so we knew that we had to be quite patient in building this thing because it was almost like the next layer on top of things like digital banking. And so, yeah, we we bootstrapped it and we did it in this very modular workout the things that most people wanted to do and start building from there. 
That's amazing. And especially because you said you had actually got some offers, because I think a lot of people think that the raising is the hard part, right? Oh, I need to try and raise funds. And they focus solely on that. And here you were, you had that and you actually decided, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, what was that decision-making process like for you? And as a second question as well, if you're comfortable sharing ballpark figure, what ended up being what you actually put in roughly? versus what you were thinking of raising. Yeah, I don't mind sharing. I think it's really important for people to to know sort of what it takes to to build out a product. And so I think there's there's kind of two points to this. It depends what you're building as to whether or not you need to raise funds early. And we didn't need to raise funds at that time because what we were building then was what I would call more tech enabled than pure tech. Um, so we weren't, like I say, we weren't building that out a whole load of AI and machine learning. We were building consumer products that are technology products, are software products, but they don't require teams and teams of teams of developers to build. They were things that we could work out how to build effectively ourselves and then hire a team to kind of execute on it. Um, so we realized actually that we could do an awful lot with not that much money. And so I would say over sort of three or four years, we've spent about a hundred thousand to get to where we are. That's across everything. I actually think if we were to do it again, we would spend less because we know more now. And also because in that time frame, there's so much that has developed in terms of building blocks of tech. So when we started, there just didn't exist uh, as many of the sort of templated things that you could get now. You know, if I was to start Lifetimes from scratch, I would be buying templated web pages, templated apps, some of the no code stuff that you can get rather than building from scratch. Um, it's the building from scratch that costs the money. Exactly. Because I think that is the time and skill of a developer who, you know, at the end of the day, they are, they are pricey to hire. So if these solutions already exist, they are definitely worth it. Uh, and they do today. But I think that also goes to show that you did start thinking about this early on. You did start on this before these types of things were available to people. Um, so the fact that you chose to bootstrap and that that's all that you put in, in theory, I mean, it's, it's a lot. Don't get me wrong. You've definitely invested a decent amount, but I think what I say to people, because people come to me specifically around mobile apps as well, and they ask, you know, they don't know how much it costs. And I say as well, you have to think 100 to 300,000 if you, about the app that you're thinking of, right? And then indeed, let's work on scaling it down because it doesn't need to be that in the beginning. And secondly, as well, which I love that you touched upon is tech can be it, tech in itself, or it can be a delivery mechanism. Right. And more often than not, what you're trying to get to people is knowledge or a experience or an answer, which you can do in many different ways. You can start communities, you can start newsletters, or you can do what you've done effectively. Um, heck, you can start a podcast. And then if you have the following and, you know, then start building out into technology, it really depends on the business goals, the values and what you're looking to achieve. How have you found that process? Like what were ideas that you had? What were things that you decided not to do? Tell me a bit more about your decision-making process and how you arrived to these conclusions. Yeah. So at the beginning, so it was very interesting. So we actually built a prototype that was more Sims-like. So we actually worked with some incredible games designers and developers and we built out a, a little prototype that kind of showed what the, the sim style characters would be. We had the whole sort of rigging of the, of the avatars and everything done. And that was great. And we used that to test. But as we were going through that process, we realized that we were probably focusing on the wrong bit. We were focusing on almost like the end game, the, you know, what, the, what, what it would look like at the end when we built everything. And not focusing enough on whether that was delivering the value to the user that the user wanted. So we had this vision in our head uh, and it's that classic thing, you know, all founders do this, like building an MVP, I think is the hardest piece of the entire journey. Scaling back your vision to the bare bones of what you need to test and learn about what your users want is impossible. Everybody overshoots their MVP like by miles. You always build way too many features 
that people don't need and then you scale it back. But so we'd started with like, what do we think that the users need from an engagement perspective? And that was the beautiful games design stuff. But fundamentally that missed the point on some of it, which was what are the, what is the specific value that the user needs to get from this? And so we, we basically capped that off. So we probably spent about maybe like 30 grand building out this lovely little prototype only to go, right, that wasn't it. Now we actually need to go right back to basics. And what can we build that is so simple to actually test the individual inputs and outputs that the users want? And we started, so we worked with the money advice service. We basically borrowed their data. They were very kind and liked what we were building. And they gave us their data around what our demographic, which was kind of like 25 to 40 plus year olds, were searching on their site. And overwhelmingly, kind of the two things that people cared about most were how do I afford to buy a home and how do I afford to start and raise a family? So that was the order that we built in because we we went sort of very data-driven at that point and said, well, this is what most people want. So let's start there. And then we stripped it right back to bare bones of, well, what are the inputs and outputs? And then we just started testing it. So we kind of swung all, all the way to the end of what the end game could look like and be like, oh, no, come back. So then how did that lead to the decision to uh, raise funds? When did you feel you were ready and why? And you actually crowdfunded your, your, you know, what you've got now, which not a lot of people do either. I know it looks like a very popular method, but overall people still think it's easier to go angel or, or VC. So tell me a bit more about that. So our, our process really, we always knew we would raise money. So it was always on the roadmap. It was only ever a question of time. We actually, we probably could have raised maybe 12 to 18 months sooner. Um, but we were quite busy. <laughs> so we chose to raise, we did, we took part in an accelerator program that Accenture runs, which is just for fintech companies. We did that in the first quarter of 2019. And that was fantastic. It opened loads of doors to us and actually introduced us to some of our angel investors. So that was brilliant. And it was on the back of that, that we said, okay, here's our roadmap until end of 2020, and then we'll raise money. Um, and that's effectively what we've done. And so we've, we've raised, so far we've raised quarter of a million. We're actually looking to raise up to 600,000 in this round. So we're still fundraising, but we've just split it into tranches. Um, once COVID hit and it became very apparent that some fundraising channels were kind of subdued, <laughs> we took the decision A to crowdfund and B to split our fundraise into sections. So that we can, in between times, we can get on, keep building, hit some more milestones and off we go. And the crowdfund was a couple of reasons, really. One, because we're a consumer fintech company. You know, those individual investors are our customers, are our users. We wanted to make the investment process pretty democratic. I, I, I love the idea of having individual people who use and love our products also be investors in the company. So as we build, as we become more successful, they get to share in that success. That's like, that's basically like the whole ethos of Lifetize. Can I help everybody build more wealth, feel financially secure? And also it's quite a tried and tested path for fintechs. So, you know, if you think about the challenger banks, Monzo have raised through it, Revolut raised through it. So it made sense for us. It's quite good from a sort of marketing profile raising perspective as well. I think there, like, basically, there, there are particular types of companies that do well in crowdfunding, and then there are other types of companies that you never see kind of crowdfund. Uh, so in that sense, it does fit very well, and I think it just suits your, like you say, your values and your company so well. Um, so I'm really glad that I just I was so happy seeing the updates of it like pop by um, on Twitter and on different places on social and in your newsletters. So that was really fun. So now what's next? Now we get to work. <laughs> so what's funny about fundraising, and I think it doesn't matter how often you read it as a founder until you go through it, you don't realize it. Fundraising is a full-time job and it really, really is a full-time job. And particularly if you are a woman or if you come from 
um, an underrepresented background, right? Where you're, you're basically the amount of funds that are available to you are between three and 8% of the total amount of venture funding that goes to anybody. You have to be prepared that it will take you longer than average. And that is the reality. And you kind of have to lean in to that a little bit, but it is genuinely a full-time job. You are speaking to investors all the time. You are having to put pitches together. You know, it's, it's not a case that you create one pitch deck and off you go. You, you're constantly refining your pitch. And so that is time that is spent away from your business, right? And it can take six months at the moment. You've got to be expecting it to take kind of potentially like six to nine months to raise funds in, in the current environment. And so when you actually do close on a round or part of a round, that's time when you can actually get back to running the business. So we're incredibly excited, you know, coming into Q3, we now have like this full product roadmap. We now have the funds to um, fund it. We have all these like resources lined up that we didn't have access to before. And we get to start really, we go from being a very scrappy sort of self-starter startup to professionalizing a lot of what we do, which is really nice. Yeah, I hear that a lot actually from founders that it starts to feel a bit more real and a bit less like running it from your living room. Yeah. And like I say, we've always been remote first. So we've always been very open about the fact that it's run from like Nick in the living room, me at the kitchen table. That's what's where we spend most of our time. But I, I think it's just the level of resource that you can bring on now is like next level. Exactly. So we get to work with really good PR agencies, really great agencies who get under the hood in terms of our data. It becomes the difference between having to develop that expertise yourself, which is what a lot of bootstrap founders do, which is incredible, right? Like the breadth of knowledge that I have now from being, you know, videographer, podcaster, <laughs> sound engineer, you know, everything that's not even the core of the lifetime's business for everything that you have to learn from a marketing perspective, from a finance perspective. So important, I think, for founders to learn. But the time when you can actually then bring domain experts in to help you is when you really get to accelerate. And I'm so excited. <laughs> that's amazing. I can't wait for you guys. To speak a bit more about that, because my other question was, you don't have a CTO. When you spoke about Nick being the CEO and you being the CEO, there, there is quite an important person missing that people expect to be there uh, when it comes to a quote-unquote tech company or a fintech company. Why, why is that? Was that a decision, a uh, purposeful decision or, or not? And how have you found that? We haven't needed one really until this point. Uh, because again, what we're building is tech enabled. So I just want to be really clear that we haven't even really had UX designers. So when people look at what we've built, um, you know, quite rightly, they pull us up on things that could be done better from a UX UI perspective. And I'm always like, yeah, hands up. Like I've designed most of this and pulled people in at the last minute. You know, when you're bootstrapping, you genuinely do become Jack or Jill of all trades and. But when it came to the actual tech stack, as I said, we outsourced a lot of the development work. So we outsourced it to a, a full team. So effectively, we almost had like an outsourced CTO mm -hmm. for that, you know, in terms of advising us on the tech stack, um, architecture, how do you, you know, designing our database. And the products that we built so far were relatively simple. And, you know, our job is to simplify money as much as possible. And we wanted to keep our tech stack as simple as possible. We made conscious decisions to go web first. So we, we are still browser based rather than native mobile apps. Um, and so all of that combined meant that we didn't actually need a CTO up until this point. Now that we're starting to build more of what I call the platform layer, you know, so we're looking at architecture from an API perspective. We're looking at it from the perspective of integrating with banks and other third parties. Um, all of a sudden that becomes much more complex from a real, what I call like real tech perspective. And so we will be bringing on a CTO. We're very fortunate in that amongst, I think because my background is like, I did a lot of work with software companies. I'm very, very comfortable with software. I'm very comfortable with working with engineering teams. Um, but 
we also amongst our friends and our investors have about six CTOs. So one of our investors is the former CTO of BlackRock, for example, like the world's largest asset manager. We have another investor who's a CTO of a big currency trading platform. So we have an incredible amount of technical expertise that we can draw on. So they help us hire our external tech talent, things like that. Um, but now that we're getting into the real platform pieces, more of the algorithmic stuff that is going to be the core value of our products, yes, we're going to hire a CTO. Brilliant. Now, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it goes to show how much you can get done by A, learning yourself and getting involved and B, leveraging leveraging your network and you know being okay to, to ask for advice here and there. And I think what you touch on a very important piece, which is hiring. That is the part where that knowledge is really helpful when you're trying to work out who to work with. And it must, you know, that must have gone really well because you talk about being able to, you know, the external teams that you've had, there is this interface between you and them, but mainly through one person who was able to play that kind of more senior role in the team. I think a lot of mistakes that people make are to kind of manage the direct engineers themselves. And I think that's tricky. Can you tell me a bit more about that for those who are interested in starting about that relationship between you and that team in terms of you getting your vision across and the team building what you were looking to, to see come to life? Yeah. So, I mean, it has definitely evolved. And as I say, we've become more professional at it now, but you know, we've, we're only now just getting to the stage of regular stand-ups, um, full agile working with, you know, we've, we've, we've worked with sprints and that kind of thing for a long time, but much more informal because we'd worked. So we're just at the stage of hiring a new team actually. And that is where we have a bigger team dedicated to us full time. And we start to work in this slightly more traditional agile way of, of doing things. But really for me, I am, because I've, as a, a lawyer who's very used to drawing up software contracts, I've always had to go to tech teams and say, what is it that you're building? Describe it, draw pictures for me. I need to see where the data is flowing. I need to understand how all of the constituent parts fit together and what it does. So I've always been very, very comfortable. I love whiteboarding. Right? I am incredibly happy in front of a whiteboard. Um, I understand data flows. I basically taught myself enough around database structuring to be able to have the conversations. But I definitely need somebody on the engineering side who's like my equivalent, <laughs> but they can then translate my stuff for engineers. But in terms of what I put together, so I'm very comfortable. So when we always give for front end, we always give layered PSDs. We now use either Figma or Sketch because then it outputs a lot of the CSS, makes that a lot simpler um, for like a lot of the back end stuff. So in terms of functionality, I will always do user flow diagrams. Um, so we actually do, I do a lot of the specking myself. Um, I'm very comfortable looking at um, database schema now. And I've had to learn all of this. And I've had very patient people on the engineering side who have helped me get better at it. Um, but I'm a details person. And I think as a lawyer, I'm very logical. So from that perspective, it's been quite easy for me to interface with somebody because I'm very used to breaking things down into quite minute steps. Although I always do. I always say I forget to put like back buttons on things. I always, like my one thing. I'm always like, oh, well, hang on, wait. Someone wants to go back or undo that last thing right. So I always, my tech teams always know. I'm always like, you, like you're going to have to work out how we reverse this for the user because yeah. I'm only going to look at it in a one-way direction. That is hilarious. Um no, but that goes to show that is truly incredible. And I think that is in a weird way also, that in a way is also what it takes to to be in fintech. It's not that you end up doing the programming yourself, far, far from it. But in order to kind of uh, lead a team to execute a vision that you that you and Nick have had for a long time and, and that it was very clear from, you know, being a really global way of for people to afford their lives that they, you know, that they want to have. 
all the way down to indeed stand up. What are we doing? How do you get back out of this flow? Jumping between those two levels and all that in between is important to do regularly. Um, I see, I see some founders, you know, wanting to truly outsource tech in terms of just being able to give a rough direction <laughs> and just say, this is what I'm looking for. Go and make it. And it never is what, you know, it never comes back that way. It does require a level of breaking down and bringing that team along with you. Have you, you've, you've seen a lot in the industry now. How does that resonate with you? Yeah, completely. So it's, it's really, it would be very alien to me. And it's going to be interesting as I grow the business and I step out of this because what am I? Effectively, I am, I'm the product owner. So I have that real sort of product manager role, but actually I probably get deeper in some ways than some product managers would in larger teams. Um, and it's going to be very interesting for me to learn to step out of it a little more. I think that's going to be the next learning bit for me because I'm all over it. Like I'm literally all over it. I, um, I want to be involved in the whiteboarding. I want to understand why certain decisions are made in terms of architecture. I ask people to really explain things to me. I'm, like I say, I'm a lawyer, so I cross-examine everything. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, but equally, I try to be incredibly respectful of the engineering team. You know, what we've always said to our teams is we understand that this type of deep work takes time. We are not unreasonable in terms of time limits. We ask for great quality work, but we've always been, we've never been that terrible, like actually my engineering team might have something to say on this, but um, we've tried not to be that terrible non-technical founders who expect everything to be done incredibly cheaply, incredibly quickly. And we've always taken on board things that our engineering team tell us. If they have a better, we've always tried to encourage that, that it's not just me saying, right, we want it this way, but for them to say, hang on a second, have you thought of this? That That is awesome. It's that mindset that um, CEOs actually really need to develop when they're looking to enter tech. And there has to be some understanding of, of what that work is like. And it, it's a very famous triangle, right? Money, quality, and time, like pick two. And so as a founder, which of those two is, is most important to you? And, um, you could have given that you were bootstrapping, you could have gone for cheap, right? Um, but that brings its own challenges and its own problems. And, um, yeah, so that is a really interesting reflection there. Yeah. We, we sacrificed time. We consciously sacrificed time. We rejected the move fast and break things mantra. We are building a high trust product right? Users have to trust what we're building. Otherwise they're not going to use it. We've always wanted to be very ethical in terms of what we're building. And so for us, that meant, okay, so we're going to have to go slower than the average fintech, you know, mm -hmm. and we're going to have to be okay with that. And that comes with challenges. It can be very frustrating at times to not see your vision realized. You know, we talk about being maybe 10% done, in terms mm -hmm. of what we're actually building. And that's very exciting because it means that there's so much scope and opportunity, um, for us. But we've, we had to be okay with sacrificing time because mm -hmm. quality was always, quality and trust for us were always the key drivers for the business. What would you say are then the practices that you've embraced to um, kind of have that mindset because it, you know, it's people think they, no one says that running a business is easy, right? Far from it. But also, you know, you read these things about, oh, people have a morning routine or this and that. And, you know, of course those things are important and, and they can be tactics that you implement or not, but they are at the end of the day tactics. It really is about, I think, spending time with your vision and consciously deciding your strategy as to how you're going to realize that vision. Um, how has that been for you? What have you had to change or adapt and what have you learned over the last few years in terms of being where you are now and in, in, in having that clarity? Yeah. So I, I guess in some ways I'm fortunate because I'm incredibly strategic. So I see the complexity and how all of the stuff fits together quite easily. So in terms of the vision, in terms of, you know, what do we need to do to get there? I'm brilliant at that. Where I've had to get better is on actual execution on mm -hmm. what would probably be called the startup grind. 
you know, because, because it is, it's all of those individual tasks that have to get done in order to have any chance of hitting the vision. And like I say, when you're a small team, you're doing so many of those tasks yourself. Right. There's, you know, you, we outsource quite a lot of stuff and we get really talented people to do bits and pieces. But at the end of the day, you are mainly responsible for the outputs, right? Getting mm-hmm. stuff done. And if I'm really honest, that's, that is not naturally my skill set. So Nick is brilliant at it. Nick is Mr. Productivity. Boom, boom, boom. Get stuff done. Got a checklist. Make sure we get ev- through everything. But I'm a, I'm both a detailed person to tell you, okay, here's what we need to do, but I'm not necessarily brilliant at making sure everything gets done. So I need to have, thank God I've got that in my co-founder, who's just an absolute operator. He's a machine and make sure everything gets done because otherwise I'd just be thinking these lovely thoughts about what we could build and nothing would get out into the world. So I think you have one of the key things is you have to be so honest with yourself about where you fit on that spectrum of, are you a vision strategy leader type person or are you a okay, here are all the tasks, let's get them done, execution, operator type person, because you need both of those in the business. I wouldn't have done this if it hadn't been for Nick. He's the one who has been relentless about making sure we hit all of the milestones, all of the deadlines, get all of the output we need. That's kind of where I was getting at in terms of it does take a lot of intangible work to kind of realize that stuff about yourself and realize, okay, how am I running this? How am I going to get this done? Not in terms of the vision, but literally me as a person with my own strengths, but my own faults as well, right? hundred percent. So I, so again, Nick and I invest in this stuff. So we've both had individual coaching on it. Like it's, you need it. It is running a business is hard. Running a startup is very, very hard. You're creating something from nothing is hard. Doing it with your partner is hard. Funding it yourself is hard, right? There's, it, it, there's a lot of pressure there. It's like it's, all of it kind of comes together in a little cauldron. I call it, I think that it is an absolute, it's the best form of self-development that you can do because it's literally like putting yourself in this little cauldron and then turning up the heat and then saying, right, how are you going to react? to all of this. So we've done a ton of self-development work as we've gone along Mm. and it's the best investment that we've made. Um, because now that we're in a position that we've got these funds, we're very, very strong because of everything that we've gone through. Like we're really strong. We're very focused. That is amazing. And I think that will shine through. And also people often say, how do I get VC investments? Like how does this work? And I think one of the key things is it's the team and the strength of the team and can they execute and the fact that that it has that you've got proven track record and have gone through that grind have been in that cauldron with some very high heat at times means that now that stuff's really accelerating like you say you know it's just getting started now in a weird way that's incredibly exciting and yes there'll be new challenges but the challenges change but the way you um the way you handle them that's where you massively you know you strengthen over time and you get better at um, so I can't, I can't wait to see what happens. Honestly, I'm incredibly excited for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We're so excited now. It really feels like this feels like phase two, you know, phase mm-hmm. one was, okay, here's what we can, here's what we can do ourselves. And actually, you know, it's one of the really interesting things I think as a founder is you're always looking forward you focus yeah. so much on what you still have to do and what are the upcoming goals? You know, what, what does this quarter look like in terms of milestones? What do I have to hit? And actually, most of us are really bad at taking stock of what we've actually done up until that point. Mm-hmm. Like, I think mentally, we've only got so much energy. So we put it on like, what, what do I have to do rather than, oh, wow, actually, we've done all of these things. But Nick and I have really tried recently to just look and be like, oh, wow, okay, we did that. We've mm-hmm. done all of this and it's mainly been us. That's great. Yeah. And now it just means that there's such a solid foundation for us to now pull in all of this amazing talent and expertise that we didn't necessarily have access to before. And now we're like, we're, we're genuinely so excited. We're so excited. No, I think you're right in terms of reflection is a very key point. So, so 
on that, what would you advise if you're looking back now at everything that you know you and Nick have accomplished and and where you've gotten to today? Do you have some final top tips for anyone who's actually starting that journey and has got quite a hill in front of them? I've got several. The first thing is don't build from scratch unless you have to, which is kind of what we touched on before. So before you start thinking, I need, I've got a great idea for an app. I'm going to hire someone to build it. Have a look at what already exists in terms of what are the components of that app. And do they already exist in some way that you can bolt them together, even if it feels like you're gaffer taping them together, even if it feels like some of the steps that you have to do a manual, um, do that first, learn what you can before you start to hard code it into something, because it's the difference between spending six months building an app or six months doing experiments that will tell you more about what your users want for the app. Like, honestly, that is the biggest thing. Please do not spend money on building things until you've worked out how you can do it for almost no money. (laughs) Uh, So that's one. The second thing is definitely going back to the fundraising point. Most people don't need to fundraise. And also, unless you have already raised money, had an exit, or you've got some sort of incredible superstar background, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to raise money before you've built something and shown traction. So to give a bit of context, I think it's really important. What does that mean? So we have just fundraised now, having spent, like I said, about a hundred grand on building, having acquired nearly 20,000 users um, of our products, having had tens and tens of thousands of people, more people kind of come onto our sites, know about us, had a ton of press, been through a prestigious accelerator, um, and now we've started to make money. So we've had to show all of that traction to be able to raise money. So, I, so anyone who's thinking, well, before I start building something, I'll raise money. It's unlikely you're going to do it. Don't waste your time. Put something together, start showing some results from it and then think about fundraising. And then the final one is whatever you get a good group of people around you who either have Mm -hmm. already built things or are in the same kind of process of building things. You need a peer group who who understand what you're doing because generally your other friends and family are not going to understand it right there. Not going to understand why you've walked away from a really good job. They're not going to understand why you've put all of your life savings into these funny things that you're building. Like for us, like my family has always been uh, very good. I think Nick's family only took it seriously once we were in evening standard. <laughs> We had to be in like national press before they were like, oh, this is what you're doing. So you definitely need a really good peer group of people around you who really get what you're doing and can also share best practices and stuff with you. It's a massive shortcut. If there's people who've already done it, lean on them. Like start asking questions. Don't try and do everything yourself. Amazing. Sounds perfect. So where can our listeners find find you, um, the CEO of LifeTies, or also as a user, if they're interested in LifeTies, how can they get on board? Yeah, so LifeTies is just LifeTies.com. On socials, we're at LifeTies. So that's L-I-F-E-T-I-S-E. And then if people want to find me, I hang out far too much on Twitter. And I am Kaz underscore LifeTies. And you'll spot me because I've got purple hair on there. Brilliant. I was going to ask about that. Where is the beautiful hair? It's been purple. It's been bluish as well. Sometimes I see. Yeah, it turns out that quarantine and decent hair do not go together. And also, if I'm very honest, I had to. I scrapped it when I started fundraising. And actually, one of our investors who knew me mainly with purple hair said to me, "Oh wow, don't you look all grown up?" (laughs) He was just teasing me. He was like, "Wow, you've gone corporate." Oh my gosh. Okay. So we need to get you back on for, for talking a bit more about what it's like as a woman in, in the fundraising business. Cause I think there's actually a whole episode for that. There is. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. And it's, it's really interesting. And I, I'm very grateful to be where I am. And somebody, um, a friend put something on LinkedIn yesterday. I, I, I was quoted in an article for Money Week on how, what, how do we get more women into fintech? Because it's still, it's very, similar to traditional financial services in that it looks very white and male. Um, 
And both I and another female founder said, you just need to fund women-led fintechs or fintechs with women in very senior management roles. It will be the quickest way to see change. Um, and it's the same. I, I view it as the same, you know, how do we, how do we get more, um, black and minority ethnic people into tech? Well, fund, fund them, fund the people who are building these businesses because they will bring on other people. It's, it's the, by far the fastest route to us creating change in these industries. And so I, I feel both very privileged that I've even been able to raise money, but you, you're doing it in the context and you cannot escape the fact that female founded teams only get between two and 3% of all money that is available and mixed teams. So I'm with Nick. So I, I get to go into the ring for the 8% that goes to mixed founding teams, right? I, I get to play for an extra 5%. And it, it's really weird because I've, I have to acknowledge that within like my previous careers, I've never actually come up personally against the structural constraints of it. Mm -hmm. I've always been promoted. I've always had recognition. I've never actually like butted up against any of these systemic things. And really, this is the first time in my life that it has been so apparent to me that there are these boxes around it. Yeah. Whole other episode. <laughs> I was going to say, this has to be a part two. There's so many things in there that I want to like chime in on, ask about, pick apart and, and get more, you know, get more details on. So if you're free sometime soon, <laughs> we'll do a part two. Um, thank you so much for being in the show. I will add all the links, including your Twitter, because it is one of my, you know, favorite pastimes is being on Twitter. And you are definitely one of the people that whose, whose posts I enjoy the most. Um, so all of that is going, going into the episode description. And uh, yeah, just thank you for being here and sharing that more people need to hear different parts of how this actually happens and how it actually gets done. And sharing that is just so, so exciting and so interesting. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I always like, it's very interesting whenever I come on podcasts, people say, you're very honest, aren't you, about the journey? And I say, yes, I think it's really important. I think there's a bit of this like startup mystique around it, you know, and people flock to do startups. And I think part of my role is to do a little bit of like Wizard of Oz style thing, like peek behind the curtain of what it actually takes. And so I'm very happy to be very honest. And thank you. For, thank you for asking such brilliant questions that allow me to be honest. Well, then I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I certainly did. Caroline's experience is a real testament to not having to dive headfirst into tons of software development. And instead, you know, having that strong focus on what you're trying to do and why first, rather than getting too caught up in the how of technology. If you are serious about getting your MVP off the ground with a minimal investment into technology, email me on maxime at cuttingthroughtech.com. I've got an exciting new program launching soon, which helps you as a female founder to do just that. Tune in next week, where I share a quick tip on better pitching, especially when you only have those few minutes to tell your company's story. For now, that's what I got for you today. Go say hi to Caroline on Twitter and me while you're at it. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.